Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 5. If you're visiting Christ Church, my name is Mark. I have the privilege of being one of the ministers here, and I've received a lot of comments on the fact that I'm wearing a tie today, so let me explain. Uh, we Chicago Cub fans wear ties every time we start the season as world champs. I looked it up in a history book. That'll explain it. All right. Luke chapter 5. Hey, we're in this series called The Gospel, and I want to remind you of the depiction behind me on the stage set. There's, if you remember when Zach came out and told us what the design was to remind you what this represents... Uh, we began, and the first nine weeks of our series were focused on the arrival, and that would be the big apex up there to my right, your left, in the blue. And that section showed when he came from heaven and the power of, of the message and the prophetic words and all that were associated with that. And then there was this drop down that went to a stage that uh, we, ta- we called obscurity, where people didn't know who Jesus was, but they knew he was somebody. And so he began to then uh, reveal himself slowly, and now we're at the stage, Michael began it last week in our message, where we're in the new stage called recognition. And you can see that there will be this climb toward people understanding who Jesus was as he reveals more and more. And this depiction behind us with the colors and the, the shapes remind us of the story plot line, the movements of Jesus' life. And we're in this week two of the recognition. And we'll continue as we go through the life of Jesus. If you are visiting, we've taken Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we've interspersed them together to the best of our ability, understanding them chronologically. So we're we're trying to, to estimate to the best we can in what order events may have happened to explain the process of Jesus revealing himself to us. You know how, no matter if you're five years old or 85 years old, every one of us gets to a certain point in time where we've received enough information, we've had enough experience that we lock down that this is the way I'm going to do things. Someone may come to you later, even at a five-year-old, they can come to you and say, well, here's how you ride a bike, and they'll look at their parents and go, I know how, with all those five years of experience. You can be 85 years old, and someone comes to you and says, well, here's how you marinate a steak and cook it on a grill, and you're like, no, no, I've done more steaks than you'll ever eat. I know how to do it. There comes a point in time where we're just not open to new experiences and new information because we've gotten to a spot in our life where we're comfortable with the way we do it. Today we're going to see a moment in the story of Peter, the apostle, in his interactions with Jesus where he's at that moment where there's just not a whole lot more he wants to open himself up to and he knows how he wants to do it the way he wants to do it. Let's look at Luke chapter 5 verse 1. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret while the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little up from shore, and then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out in the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets." When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that the nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. 
And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything and followed him. This moment is like many moments for every single one of us. It's a critical moment where the decision we make and how we're going to respond makes or breaks a pattern for our life going forward. Uh, it's the easiest way for me to explain it. I hope this isn't too lengthy, but I, would, I like to build it this way. Think of the unpleasant routines you have in your life and their routines. It's not only hard to do them one time, but you know you're going to continue to do it over and over and over. When I was a kid, being one of four boys, the older three of us were all born in a five-year span, and then my little brother showed up six years later. So he, did, he wasn't really involved in all this, but my, my parents had this routine that during the week, uh, we had to do dishes. One of us had to get the dishes ready, one of us had to wash the dishes, and the other had to dry and put the dishes away. As we got older, because we couldn't get along, my parents made us do those in separate moments. Because if you put all three of us in the kitchen, someone was going to get stabbed with one of the dirty knives. So it would be like, if it was my day to get everything uh, put together, my dad would say, go get the dishes ready. And I would have to scrape off all the food and stack all the dishes and, and start the water, and then someone would come in and wash. But I hated this, and I'm going to whine a little bit. I had great parents, but I hated this because I always got macaroni and cheese night. And we didn't have SOS pads. Those were luxuries. We were given a, just a piece of cloth, and we had to clean off nasty. And I don't like macaroni and cheese to start with, so to have to clean it's unjust. And, and I, you tried, I, didn't, I chewed my nails, so I didn't even have fingernails to scrape the plates. And I'd spend, it would take me eight hours to clean the dishes. It was horrible. And, and I'd get the fried pork chop night. I got the worst nights ever. My mother will tell you that it's a day that she knew what days I had to wash dishes by the way I woke up. She said at breakfast I was intolerable because I was grouchy and nothing was good and I just wanted it to end and I hated that night. And the problem was I just knew we were going to have macaroni and cheese because everybody else in the family liked it. Always on the night I had to do dishes. Drove me crazy. And then my brother Scott was just a punk. He'd be drying dishes that night and he'd go, you left a spot. I could have killed him with a plate. I hated that. Or I hated when it was my turn to cut the lawn, which I normally love to do. I like how it looks. There's, I don't know. Call me weird, but I enjoy that. And I would always seemingly get after nine days of rain. And the grass was 14 inches tall. And every six inches, the mower would stall and throw out clump, clumps of grass that I'd have to rake later because my dad didn't like them. And I always remember thinking, not only would I do this and it would be done, but it's never not done. It's just always going to be Got to do it again. Got to do it again. Got to do, are you with me? Do you have those unpleasant tasks in your life that are routine? And you do them because they need done, but you're frustrated that doing them one time isn't going to end the madness. Now add on top of that, those humiliating moments of your professional life. I don't know why I have this anxiety, but back in the day, it seems like a lifetime ago, uh, in a smaller church, people would come back in the, you know, the 80s and early 90s and you would have an invitation at the end of a service and a crowd like this is really difficult to get people moved in and out of aisles but in a smaller church it was easier and they would come down front and they might place membership and I always have this anxiety that I would see someone coming down to place membership with our church and I've known them for 15 years and I was fearful I would forget their name and when I would go to introduce them to the church I would forget their name and they would be embarrassed, and I would be embarrassed, and it would embarrass the church because, you know, this is my brother, uh, <laughs> Scott. You know, I mean, he's my brother, for crying out loud. I couldn't remember his name because I didn't want to embarrass him. And by not wanting to embarrass him, I would. 
Moment of professional embarrassment. I had a friend of mine tell me the worst moment. I asked him, what's the worst thing ever happened to you professionally? He said he was, they were trying to hire a CFO for their company and he, and he took him to this fancy dinner and it was this big expensive thing and his credit card got denied. Yeah, so his is worse than mine. And then, so not only do you have those, those unpleasant routine tasks that you have to do that never seem to end, then you have this humiliating moment in your professional life where you think, I just embarrassed the company as well as myself. And then the final are those unreasonable requests. Your, your boss asks you, he asks you, quote unquote, to work on Saturday, and it's the only Saturday all month you have something with your kids, and you really want to be a part of this, and you've been planning and promising, and you've had to cancel before, but now it's come, and they're asking you if you're available, and you know what available means. You're going to do it. You have that moment. It just seems unreasonable. All the hours you work and all the time you give, or maybe you work on a project and your boss takes a bow for it. You stop and you go, that guy didn't show up for anything. Why is he bowing? And you just become frustrated that you did all the work and someone else gets the credit. So think about this. An unpleasant, repetitive task, a public professional embarrassment, and then on top of it, an unreasonable request. And if you have those three ideas in your mind, you know exactly what Peter's going through in this story. And I'll tell you why I believe that. It's a disagreeable routine that Peter goes through every day. He fishes, he pulls the nets out of the water, and they have to get rid of all the shells, and they have to get rid of all the unkosher animals that nobody will eat. And then they have to mend the nets and fix the nets and get the nets ready for the next day. He has to do this every day of his existence. It's part of the job of a fisherman, and it's the unpleasant part. Then on top of that, he's fished all night. Now, if you don't know the background, let me explain. Uh, to the best of my research, most fishermen would fish from 2.30 in the morning till about 6.30 in the morning. Because the fish would come to the surface when the sun isn't up and the water's cooler, they would come to the surface and it was easier to catch them. And so because of this, they had fished all night. So about 6.30, maybe 7, 7.30 in the morning after they've just repaired their nets and got everything ready to put back in the boat to go out the next evening, Jesus comes up and says, let me borrow your boat. And Jesus goes out on the boat, maybe 20 or 30 yards into the water because being the creator of the world, he knew the acoustic advantages of the water. If he went in a boat and taught from the boat, the waves and, the, and, and all would carry his voice and amplify his voice for the audience. And then when he's done, he says to Peter, hey, let's go fishing. Well, Peter just worked all night and didn't catch anything. Now, to not catch anything is a big deal, and here's why. If you don't have fish that you caught that morning, you can't go to the market and trade fish for vegetables or for milk or for meat or for whatever else you need. If you have nothing to barter with, then you don't get groceries that night. They didn't have freezers. They didn't have refrigerators. They couldn't go to the Quickie Mart and buy a hot dog. This, if they didn't catch fish that day, they had nothing to go to market. They made no money, and it's possible they couldn't eat. So you have all of these circumstances, and Jesus says, hey, let's go fishing. All of these things combined together. It reminds me of a story I read about a Sunday school teacher uh, her last name was Marshall, and she tells a story that she was going to church. She taught uh, second graders, and she was going to church to teach her Sunday school class. She taught for years. And when she got in her car, she tore her pantyhose. And so she knew that there was a store about three blocks away from the church. So she took off to the store, and she went and bought her pantyhose. She went quickly into the church without talking to anybody, went in the ladies' room, and, and changed into her new pantyhose. And she went in her class just as the students were arriving, greeted everyone, was teaching. She said everything was going well that day until one of the little boys spotted the pantyhose package next to her Bible and purse. And before she could move it, the child yelled out, queen size? Wow, Mrs. Marshall, you are the same size as my parents' mattress. (laughs) 
She pondered but did not quit. And she said it was one of those most humiliating moments of her day. And yet later she said she could chuckle about it. Look at verse 4. Put out into the deep water and and let down the nets for a catch. This is one of those critical moments in the life of us, of each of us, as a disciple. What do we do when Jesus is unreasonable? Because here's what I want you to understand. To follow after Jesus will ask of us more than is reasonable. If Jesus can't ask you to do something ridiculous, something outlandish, something full of risk, then you and I are not willing to follow him. If he can't be unreasonable, he can't be our master. And this is what we'll learn in this story that Peter goes through. I want to tell you three things about discipleship from this story that I think are ever present in the text. The first is discipleship demands a trust that is inconvenient. Jesus does not care nearly about your comfort as he does about your character. And in this moment, the disciples who had accompanied Jesus, now if you just read through Luke, this is going to appear in Luke's account that this is one of the first moments that Peter and Jesus have ever interacted. But if you un- un- study the chronology of it, you'll understand this isn't the case. Peter was with them at the, the miracle in Canaan when he turned water into wine. Jesus saw him cast out a demon, which we talked about two weeks ago. So Peter has been in his presence. His brother Andrew came to Peter and said, come and see, I think we found the Messiah. And Peter had gone to see for himself. So here's a moment where they would go back into the towns, into Capernaum, and they would go to the, to the lakes, and they would do their fishing. Peter had a business. He worked with James and John, who would also become disciples. And so they would go home, and they would go out, and they would go home, and they would go out with Jesus. And, and so this moment, Jesus shows up, and he uses their boats. And he says, throw your nets out. Look at verse 5, the beginning of it with me. Master, we've worked hard all night long, and we have not caught a thing. Jesus knew what that meant. He understood that this was a professional embarrassment as well as a frustration and they worked hard and they have nothing to show for it. And yet Peter begins with the word master and it could probably be best uh, interpreted rather than master as instructor or teacher. Peter is saying to him, you are my teacher, you are my rabbi, you are the one who's teaching me these ways. And he said, we've worked hard all night. You see, this is the one thing Peter could say to Jesus. You're not a fisherman, I am. You don't fish at nine in the morning. Nobody who expects to catch fish goes when the sun comes up and the sun shines on the water and the fish go deep because Jesus would have known that he created the fish. It wasn't like he didn't know what they did. He made them that way. So for him to say to Peter, let's do this, that's incredibly unreasonable and minimally inconvenient. But he asked him to. You see, if Jesus has to be reasonable for you to follow him, I then believe we actually want Jesus to follow us. If he is who we says he is, if he is who we believe him to be, then he can be unreasonable because he's right. Church, are you with me? He can be unreasonable because he's always right. So he said, cast your net. And Peter voiced his struggle. He said, it's unreasonable. I, I know more about fishing than you do. And I know we never do that to God, do we? We never say to Jesus, well, you weren't married. What do you know? Maybe not in those terms, but in our actions we do. Or Jesus, you never owned a business, and I own a business, and you just don't understand what it is to, be, to try to follow you and be successful in business. And Jesus goes, hmm, since I created the principles behind it, I do know. Or we say, you've never been a parent. You don't understand. If you knew my kid, Jesus knows your kid, and he also knows you. So unless you and I are willing to allow Jesus to be inconvenient, 
we're not willing to follow him. But Peter shows a wonderful moment in the back half of verse five. He says, but if you tell me to, I will let down the nets. That's one of those, time to go take a shower. I don't want to take a shower. I didn't ask you if you want to take a shower. Go take a shower. I would take a shower. Peter's like, ah, it's, I'm not going to catch any fish, but if you're my master. If you tell me to drop the nets, I'm going to drop the nets. And he drops the nets. Peter pursued the Messiah every time he trusted what Jesus asked him to do. Harry Truman has a wonderful quote that I've kept for years. It says, the only things worth learning are the things you learn after you know it all. Church, I'm going to say that again. Give me an amen if you've been there. The only things worth learning are the things you learn after you know it all. It's called becoming an adult. But if you tell me to, I will. As unreasonable as it sounds, as inconvenient as it is, is he God? Is he our master? Because to follow after Jesus will ask of us more than is reasonable. Second thing I want you to see is that discipleship reveals the gap between my abilities and his. Not only is Jesus going to be inconvenient as our master, he's also going to show us our incapabilities. He's not going to do it to taunt us or to demean us, but he is going to bring things to our attention that remind us we're not him. See, Jesus knew the disciples had toiled through the night. That was part of the test. Will we do the things that don't make sense to us? Will we love our enemies rather than hate them? Will we, rekind, or will we respond with love rather than evil or retribution? Those are hard things. Those are inconvenient things. Those are ridiculous things. And many times we cry out to God and we say, I can't. And God goes, I know. Now you're open. Two weeks ago, I, I told you something toward the conclusion of the message that I see this trend. And it's not just me, but you can see the trend as you study the Gospels that most people who opened themselves up to Jesus came with a need. It, it, the Pharisees saw him do everything the believers saw him do, but the Pharisees weren't open. They didn't feel like they needed Jesus, so they weren't open to him at all. But those who came with the need had their needs met, and they found out who Jesus was in the process. And for many of us, until we have tried by our own strength to live our lives, we have no idea how incapable we are, right? Right? I mean, most of us follow Jesus because we got tired of following ourselves. Can I have an amen? We just realize, I can't, I don't know what I'm doing. And there's moments I, I want to say to both of my boys all the time, please don't ever parent like I did. I was guessing the entire time. So if you want to know what not to do, I'll take you to lunch and dinner and dessert. But, but don't pattern yourself off of me as a dad because I had no clue what I was doing. I can't wait to be a grandpa because then I'll get it right. But at the end of the day, part of the test is that God lets us fail. And then Peter does something. He takes the boats out, and James and John go with him, and they drop the nets, and they're thinking, you had that moment, right? Can you hear the sigh when they drop the nets? What a waste of time. We just got them clean. Peter, we spent all morning. Now we're wasting our time. And Peter's like, he's God. Do it. <laughs> so they throw the nets in the water, and all of a sudden they're like, oh, that's stupid. And they reach out and they grab the nets, and they're like, oh, oh, no. And he's like, get the other boat over here. And they have so many fish that both boats start to go underwater. Peter's response is classic. Look at verse 8. Lord, don't come near me. <laughs> I'm a sinner. This is where I am so unholy because I would have high-fived him, chest-bumped him, thanked him. I would have taken a week off afterwards. I am so out of the loop. But Peter's like, don't, don't come near me. Get, get away. Which is a strange response, isn't it? Except when you realize in Scripture when God reveals himself 
in his full power to any human being, our first response is, I can't be here. I don't deserve to be here. His holiness is going to kill me. It's a strange response, but it's an accurate one. Because I want you to see something. In the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned against God and told God that they would not be in submission to him, that they were going to do it their way, what, what was instantly created? A chasm. God sent them out of his garden and there was a separation between God and man. The holy God could not be in the presence of the unholy. And Peter sees in this moment that only God could do. The fishermen knew that fish go deep, but he called the fish to the surface. And when he blessed them with this fish, his response wasn't, I got a great life. His response was, I can't be near him. He's holy and I'm not. And Jesus does something that reverses the curse in Genesis. Jesus draws closer to Peter, not goes further away. Peter was right. Jesus should have said to Peter, you're a sinner, get away from me. But Jesus didn't come for that purpose. His arrival was so that he could draw close to us. He was reversing the curse of Genesis and drawing closer to Peter. And he drew Peter closer. And Peter fell on his knees before his God and realized what just took place has nothing to do with fish. You don't fish at nine in the morning unless Jesus tells you to. And then when you do, it reveals who he is. You see, the journey of the gospel is not so you that I could pick up 10 or 12 tidbits to live a better life. The journey of the gospel is to understand that Jesus is not someone to be toyed with. He's someone to be loved and honored at all costs. Because at the end of the day, the truth remains. To follow Jesus will ask of us more than is reasonable. And so Jesus put Peter to the test and Peter cried out, I'm unworthy, I'm unclean. And Jesus drew close to him. The separation of the garden was reversed. Peter learned that being in Jesus' presence offered him a new truth, a new way. It was inconvenient. It was embarrassing. It was hard. It was unreasonable. And it was effective. So not only can Jesus, and he will, not only will he be inconvenient, he will also show us our inabilities. And thirdly, discipleship opens us up to truth that alters our fear. It, it opens us up to a truth that will alter our fear. Peter had a right to be scared. That's why one of the most common expressions listed by the messengers in Scripture, whether it's an angel, Jesus himself, when you read through the entirety of Scripture, when a messenger of God appears to display the glory of God, some of the first words out of the mouth is constantly, do not be afraid. But do you remember when you were a kid and you were really scared? Not like faking it so you could stay up scared, but like really scared? You heard a noise or you were alone upstairs by yourself and it was dark and you were just a little bit frightened. Remember when your parents, maybe your parents didn't do this, but I think most did. Did your dad ever come in the room and go, cut it out? Nothing to be scared of. Did that work? It never worked a second with me. And I deemed that I was going to be a better dad than my dad and I never came close. But when the boys would get scared, you know, you'd go in and find out if it was real or if it was a game. And if it was real, then I knew that if I told Heather they were scared, I was going to do this anyway. So I just cut out the middleman and I would just pick them up and carry them and put them in bed with us in the middle. And they would kick, you know, she always got the soft part. They laid their head on her shoulder. I got the toenails and the ribs. I got kicked in the face. They'd lean over, open mouth, breathe on me all night long like dragons. And I'm like, God. <laughs> Being a dad's overrated. But anyway, if you have that moment, because they were truly scared. Then they got older and they're like, we're scared. And I'm like, yeah, you got your own bed. Lock the door. And uh, I'd go to bed. <laughs> so you have this moment where Jesus says to him, don't be afraid, verse 11. From now on, you will bring in people instead of fish. 
And growing up as a kid, I've heard this story, I, I would guarantee you, since I was born in the church and have been there every day and grateful for it. So in my 52 years of life, I'm going to tell you, I know I've heard this story and this teaching 100 times easy. And I never figured it out until a couple years ago it came to me. Verse 12 is a powerful verse. Here's what it says. Peter and the others left their boats, left their nets, and left the fish and followed Jesus. Think of the cash that came into their hands that day. Think of the success. Think of how they not only had enough for today, they had enough to sell in the market and could have taken a week off. And they could have got another boat. They could have taken advantage of this opportunity. But Jesus said to them, Peter, you're no longer going to be about fish. You're going to be around men. And Peter, if he's me, he would have stopped and he would have said, I've never done this. I, I'm not you. You know all these smart sayings. You're really bright. You have all this figured out. I don't even know who you are. I, I'm scared of you. And, and he said, no, no, don't be afraid. If I can do that with a nine o'clock fishing trip, what could I do with you? And Peter at that moment, as inconvenient and incapable as he was, he stops and he realizes, yeah, he's right. If he can command the fish to come from the depths to the surface, what could he do with people? Peter didn't go to college. He didn't have a theology degree. He just knew Jesus. For many of us, we say, yeah, but he doesn't understand my business. He doesn't understand my marriage. He doesn't understand my children. He doesn't understand my retirement. Let me ask you a question. If Jesus can draw the fish from the depths of the sea into the nets of a man, can he cover your retirement? Can he cover your health? Can he care for your children? Can he take care of your marriage? Can he work out your education? Can he fulfill what he says he'll do for you? Yeah, but it's going to be, it's going to ask of you more than seems reasonable. But do you think Peter has any regrets? Tradition tells us Peter gave his life to stay with Jesus. Peter didn't always have it figured out. Please remember, there were moments later in the ministry where Peter thought he was on track and he thought he had the truth and he became hard-headed. One time Jesus even called him Satan. Another time, Jesus said, you're going to deny me before the morning comes. And he says, everyone else will. I won't. Jesus said, yeah, you will. And he did three times in one evening. It's not talking about being perfect. It's talking about being open, being willing, identifying that when Jesus calls you, you leave the nets, you leave the boat full of fish, and you walk away. And that scares some of us. And we think, well, that's unreasonable. Absolutely true. And it's effective. Because to follow Jesus fully is going to be more unreasonable than anything you ever imagined. And it will change your life because you'll become more powerful than you ever dreamed. Because the God who spoke the universe into existence, his name's Jesus, he says, I want you to invest in my kingdom, not yours. And should you give up your kingdom to invest in mine, there's an eternal reward that begins right now. It doesn't wait till you die, it begins right now. So if you're struggling with a God who doesn't understand your marriage, your kids, your finances or anything, please, he does. And he may ask you to do something that's inconvenient and he may demonstrate to you that you can't fix your own situation. But he says, do not be afraid. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Because at one point in time, Andrew, Peter's brother, went to him and said, come and see, come and see. And Peter got up, went and saw. But in Luke chapter 5... He just didn't see a political figure. He saw God on earth who could change everything. It's just fish. It's just nets. It's just a boat. And he's more than all of them. He's Jesus. 
and he's worth pursuing. And that's why we're here today. As we begin to recognize who Jesus is, when the word of God speaks, we listen. It has power. The words that spoke the world into existence are the same words that say, I have a plan for your life. I am calling you to follow me, to take up your cross and die, to give up all the world and love me most. I'm asking you to do an unreasonable thing. And when you do, you'll know who I am and you'll know who you are. So whether you, let me ask you a simple question and I'll be done. Are you a follower of Jesus? I want everyone in the room to answer that question within themselves. Are you one that at the drop of a hat will follow him? Are you the one that when he speaks, you know the power of the words that spoke the world into existence are his words? Are you one who says his kingdom is more important than my kingdom? Are you a disciple? If you are not, but you realize who he is and you don't have all the education and all the answers, but you know who he is, you can follow him. And he will lead you to truth and he will lead you to life and he will lead you to hope. And if you don't know what that all means, come see me in the hallway. There's a bunch of us that would love. We're not going to sell you anything. We're not going to put your arm behind your back. I'm going to give you the reasons why I follow Jesus and the hope that's within me from that. And I want you to have the same opportunity I was given. And if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus, and I'm not questioning whether you are or you aren't, then I'm going to ask you this. Are you listening to the voice of the master? So when he asks you to do something, you respond. I'm not sure this will work, but if you say so, I'll do it. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.